With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining me for the 20th episode of my new podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is, is it expensive to be yourself? With me is Dr. Timothy R. Clark, the author of The Four Stages of Psychological Safety, Defining the Path to Inclusion and Innovation. The publisher is Barrett Kohler Publishers, Inc. Tim is the founder and CEO of Leader Factor and ranks as a global authority in the fields of senior executive development, strategy acceleration, and organizational change. He's the author of five books and over 150 articles. Tim earned a doctorate degree in social science from Oxford University and has been both a Fulbright and British research scholar. Tim, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dan. Great to be here. Good. Well, let's plunge right in. You've got a really key diagram early in the book, and I think if you can kind of elucidate on that for listeners, that will be a good way to get going. Sure. So what I what I do early in the book is I show this diagram that shows intellectual friction on one side and then social friction on the other. And this is a representation really of the stewardship of any leader in any any social unit, any team, any organization. And what I'm trying to convey here is that the leader's job is to simultaneously increase intellectual friction and then decrease social friction. Now you kind of have to think about that for a minute, but it makes sense. Every team, every organization, we need we need intellectual friction. We need creative abrasion. We need constructive dissent. We need the collision of ideas in order to solve problems, in order to come up with solutions, in order to innovate, in order to create value. That's always the raw material, right? Intellectual friction. But the problem is that when the intellectual friction gets high, when it goes to higher levels, there's a tendency for social friction to to increase as well. And there's a danger in that. Because social friction at some point, if, it, if it's allowed to get too high, it will shut down the intellectual friction and then the team won't be able to function anymore and, and, and innovate and be productive and do what it could do. So effective leaders create an environment of psychological safety where they increase the intellectual friction, but they keep the social friction down. 
And if they can do that, then the team will perform at levels that it, prop, that it, that it never thought possible. So that's, that's kind of a, a, a basic way of framing the leader's stewardship. Okay. Sense. No, I think it's it's fascinating. It's simple but powerful, and that's usually the best combination. Let's take each of the two elements on. So reducing social friction. What are the, the <clears throat> barriers to that? How does it manifest itself when there's high social friction? How do you get to the promised land of low social friction? What have you seen from your experiences and the advice you've given companies and organizations? Well, it's it's certainly not easy. Uh, social friction results from, just, I, I think just, just being human, we're sensitive. And when we ask questions or give opinions or express feelings or points of view, uh, there's sensitivity on the other end. There's insecurity, there's ego, there's, uh, we may have a, a stake in the status quo, whatever it is. And so it, it doesn't take much for people to, to react emotionally or sometimes to violate the, really the principle of respect to get, get personal. And so, so those, things, those things can happen very easily. So the effective leaders, what do they do? They, they patrol the boundaries of respect and they don't allow the dialogue or the discussion to get personal or critical in that way. They try to maintain uh, debate and discuss things on their merits. And if they can do that, then they, then they can keep the, that constructive debate, they can keep it on track and it's, it's not going to derail. So that's what I see. And it's, it's not easy. It means the leader himself or herself is uh, really taming the ego, demonstrating superb emotional intelligence because the emotional intelligence is the delivery system for all of your skills and opinions and knowledge and experience. And so that delivery system has to be working very well. Uh, there's got to be emotional regulation as you're working through uh, perhaps uh, emotionally laden issues, charged issues, and yet you've got to, you got to be able to keep the, the team on track. So it, it, it's, it's simple, Dan, but it's not easy and we shouldn't con confuse the two. I think. Yeah, no, anytime you're navigating human nature, uh, it's, it's not going to, to be, be simple. You mentioned there a word I think is quite important um, besides self-regulation and awareness, which was respect. Cause I'm looking at another uh, important chart also in your book quite early on. Uh, it's the path from inclusion to innovation. And the other axes there besides respect is permission, which I imagine has to play into uh, the other piece of this, which was increasing the intellectual uh, tension. Do you want to go on to that part of it? Yeah, sure. So what what that says is that psychological safety, well, the, let, let's, let's step back and define this. So Psychological safety as a basic concept means that it's not expensive to be yourself. And I mean socially or emotionally, politically, economically. If it's not expensive to be yourself in a social unit, then what do people do? They jump in, they engage, they bring their best game, and they want to contribute and make a difference. Uh, that 
that the level of psychological safety on a team or in any kind of social collective is a function of those two things that you mentioned, respect number one and permission number two. And as those go to higher levels, what happens is that we progress through different stages of psychological safety. So the first stage is what I call inclusion safety. And what that means is that you feel accepted, you feel included, you feel a sense of belonging. And that's, that is the first thing that people are concerned about. It's the first thing people worry about when they, when they go into a social setting. Will I be included, accepted, and feel that sense of belonging? And so that is stage one. That's the foundation. And if we don't put that foundation in place, then it's very difficult to advance to, to, to the higher stages. So we build on that. That's stage one. And then we go to stage two, which is learner safety. Learner safety means that not only am I included, but I feel safe to engage in the learning process. I can ask questions. I can give and receive feedback. I can experiment. I can make mistakes. And I'm not going to be embarrassed or marginalized or punished in that process. So we need, there's, there's, a, there's a, a, another safety level that we need to engage in all aspects of that learning and discovery process. Then we go to stage three. And, and by the way, this pattern, it follows, it follows the pattern of basic human needs. So after you learn the, the next natural human instinct is to use what you learn, apply what you learn. And that takes us to stage three contributor safety, which means that I feel that I'm a, full-fledged member of the team, and I can contribute and make a difference based on my skills and knowledge and and experience. And so that's what happens at stage three. I can participate in that value creation process. And then we finally go to stage four, the culminating stage, which is challenger safety. Challenger safety is fascinating because this is the realm of innovation. This is where we solve new problems, come up with new solutions, make make new breakthroughs. Challenger safety means that I feel safe to challenge the status quo. Uh, And again, without jeopardizing my personal standing or reputation, without uh, retribution or retaliation. And the reason that this is the last stage is because now my personal level of exposure and vulnerability are at the highest level. And so I need, I need the most, I need the highest level of psychological safety to protect me in those acts of vulnerability and challenging the status quo, because that's not an easy thing to do. So I, I guess that's a basic overview, Dan, of the, of the four stages. Well, and, and that's wonderful and, and very well articulated because to me, that's what really lifted the book so high in my estimation because it really is a model that makes sense. It seems relatively lucid and yet it's, of course, complicated to navigate and you've laid out both the challenges involved 
and the benefits that can accrue from being able to enact this. Uh, it certainly makes me think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs for once your safety is taken care of, you can move on to the upper levels of fulfillment. It also makes me, makes me think back to earlier in my career, I was working for the New Jersey Division of Consumer Affairs, and I was allowed to attend the weekly legal review. And I love the person who ran the department. He would say, this is probably a stupid question, and it never was. And he said it in a way that was so soft and gentle. It didn't put the person who was going to answer on the defensive, and it invited everybody in to yeah. ponder something, to challenge it, to noodle it, tease it out. He was just a wonderful leader. And uh, having not always had wonderful leaders since then, yeah. I've gone back to appreciating that gentleman a lot. Well, you Speaking know Dan, Go ahead. you remember that, right, all these oh, years yes. later. So his modeling behavior stayed with you and it had an impact on you and it still resonates with you. And I can, I can still hear the, the timber of his voice as he'd ask the question and even picture him in the room. Um, yeah, it's just a wonderful touchstone for me. There are some, study. Great yeah, there are, there are some uh, pretty devastating statistics in your book. I'm not sure we'll get around to all of them, but I think even one of them will give the flavor uh, of why your book is is so important to try to enact its insights. And uh, I'll just take one. This is the statistic that merely one third of U.S. workers believe their opinions count. Uh, that's pretty devastating. What are the characteristics of companies where they, they do count? I, I assume it involves respect and permission, but what more beyond that might you want to say? Well, it really goes back to the example that you gave, Dan, with, with, with the leader that you worked for those years ago. And that is, it's really the leader's modeling behavior that gives you a sense of confidence and self-efficacy and permission to voice your opinion. To, and then with, with, the, with the confidence that you will be heard. Uh, it's, 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 it's really, we take our cues from our leaders and the number one thing in culture formation, the most important fact factor is the modeling behavior of the leader, because the modeling, the modeling behavior of the leader is the factor that matters most in creating the, the norms for the team or the organization. And so we pay very close attention to that modeling behavior and what is permitted and what is not permitted. So when we go in, let's think about it this way. When humans go into social settings, they immediately begin to engage in what we call threat detection. What, what are we looking for? We're, we're looking, we're observing, we're perceiving. We're trying to figure out if the environment, if the team, if the, if the climate and culture, if it's safe or not. And the way, and, and so what we look at to make that determination is we, we look at our peers and our colleagues and our coworkers, and we look to see who is engaging in acts of vulnerability. And then we look to see if those acts of vulnerability are being rewarded or punished. And by, by act of vulnerability, I mean very simple things, such as uh, asking a question or asking for help, or expressing an opinion, or um, expressing a, you know, an alternative opinion. Those little things 
uh, or admitting that you don't know or admitting that you, you, um, you need some help. Those little things are acts of vulnerability. And, and humans, uh, subconsciously, we're always paying attention to that to gauge that level of psychological safety. So back to your original question, if the leader is modeling behavior in which he or she uh, demonstrates uh, vulnerability, number one, and uh, rewards acts of vulnerability that other people engage in, we pick up on that really quickly. And that's the number one thing that signals to us that, you know what, it's, um, this is a place where I can be acknowledged and I can be heard. And my opinion is uh, not only appreciated, but expected. So it goes right directly back to the behavioral patterns of the leaders. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense to me. I remember uh, it was an evolutionary psychologist who said this is fairly simple in the end. It comes down to uh, survival, and survival entails in part, I want to be able to feel good about myself, and I need so that I have you know energy and confidence and motivation to keep going, and then I need to accrue allies. But you're right. You, you look around that environment, and you try to understand uh, what's going on. There's a wonderful old poem by Wallace Stevens in the first stanza is, a duchess is not a duchess a hundred yards from the carriage. Women understand this because when you have less physical prowess and quite possibly less standing in the community as women have unfortunately historically had to endure, then you have to be very sensitive to your surroundings and figure out indeed, as you're suggesting, what's permissible and not permissible. You, you mentioned asking and uh, you have something I enjoy in the book. You said the tell to ask ratio. What is the optimal tell-to-ask ratio? I'm sure it varies by situation, but can you give us some sense of what that term means and how it plays out? Sure. So I, I talk about um, really, I think I call it the coaching continuum. So just think of a horizontal line. And on one end is the tell end, T-E-L-L, so telling. And then on the other end of that continuum is asking. And as, as, as colleagues, as individuals, as leaders, we use the entire coaching continuum, but uh, we, we tend to, at least traditionally, leaders, many leaders were stuck at the tail end and they were far too didactic. They would tell, 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 tell their people all the time they're telling. I mean, I, I grew up in locker rooms as an athlete, and and I was deeply socialized into this this model, this traditional tell model of coaching and leading. Well, that's a big problem. Now, if you're a beginner uh, and you need you need your leader, you need your boss to be a little bit more directive. That's fine. That's that's one thing. But if that continues to be the pattern, that is a problem because you're, uh, the leader then is standing in the way of the individual's growth. And at some point, if you keep telling too much, you're breeding dependency and learned helplessness. And, and you're getting in the way of that person's advancement and growth. And so an ideal ratio, it's, it's very difficult to say, but I think 
that an ideal ratio is probably around 75% ask, 25% tell. Now, I know I'm generalizing, and that's very dangerous. It's a very risky of me to do that. But I, I think far too many leaders that I see and work with are stuck at the tail end, and they need to shift in a pretty dramatic way to the ask end. They need to learn how to lead through questions, through inquiry. And the reason that this is so important is because when you lead through questions, not exclusively, but mainly, you transfer two things. You transfer ownership, and number two, you transfer the burden of critical thinking. And this is very important. We need to accelerate the development of critical thinking in our people. The way that you do that, the way you accelerate that, is that you take an ask, uh, an ask approach. And you put the burden at their feet to think through things. You help them, you guide them, you facilitate, but you let them do the work. You don't do the work for them. And it seems to me it would bring in a third thing, which is actually uh, you signal your own vulnerability because you don't know precisely what will come back in the answer to the question. And you're going to need to intellectually and emotionally dance and involve in a way that you don't necessarily, when you're telling, when you can go on autopilot based on what you think you already know and, uh, you know, are sticking with it. Um, I could say a lot about some locker rooms I've been in since I've done work for pro and college teams, but we'll, we'll leave that for the moment. Uh, you have a statement at one point in the book that a lot of executives suffer from narcissism, which seems to me important based on what you were just talking about, where there's way too much telling and they get stuck. Uh, maybe a comment or two on, on that front? It is a pattern that we see, and it's it's a misguided pattern on the part of leaders where Really, they, they have it wrong in terms of motivation and intent. They look upon leadership as a glittering path to really their own rewards instead of recognizing that leadership is the great enabling art to help others be successful and that your success is indirect. Your rewards are indirect. Your compensation is your psychological compensation is when they are successful and they and, and and they achieve. And so if you haven't gone through that psychological transition where you lose your hubris, you lose you lose your your arrogance, um, then you're gonna be getting in the way. And as I like to say about leaders, uh, you either lead the way or get in the way. You're never a neutral actor. And and so if you're preoccupied with yourself, if you can't get out of your own way, you're going to, by definition, get in everybody else's way instead of being that, um, that, that, that great enabler, that guide uh, with, with great humility because your hubris becomes an occupational hazard at some point. And we see this a lot. Yeah, no, I, I've certainly witnessed it as well. Uh, shifting focus a little bit, uh, there's another intriguing statement in the book. The basic unit of performance in the 21st century is the team. So it sounds to me like it's going to be possible in some ways to move beyond the narcissistic leader because this, this team approach uh, is going to require some, some very different skills and mindset for approaching it. Uh, what, what can you tell us behind that statement? Can you unpack it for us as it were. Yeah, I really think that's true, Dan. I think 
if the, the team is the basic unit of performance, meaning that you really can't fly solo, but because uh, modern society and, and the modern economy is far too complex. In order to create value in that context, it requires interdependency, the interdependency of, of the people on a team. And so if you're the leader of the team, you, your job is to facilitate the collaboration of the team. And therefore, the old industrial age model of leadership where you are the repository of answers, you are leader as oracle, right? The person that, that you come to, give me the answer, dispatch me, I'll go get the job done. That's obsolete. You can't lead that way because you won't know the answers. You don't know the answers. You will learn your living perhaps more than earn your living. So you, you're a player coach. You need to be able to guide and support and, and help that team. And the only way to do it is through this process of rich collaboration. Now you may, you, you certainly have to provide guidance and vision and, and uh, leadership in terms of where are we going and how, how are we going to get there? But the way that you do get there is a process of very rich collaboration and interdependency. But you can't do that with that old imperial model. It just doesn't work. And, and not only that, if you try to lead a team of, for example, new millennials, you know, very talented millennials that are coming out of coming out of school, they're going to look at you and roll their eyes because, and they're going to call a timeout. They're going to say like, so what century are you from? (laughs) It's just work. Right. So, so let's talk about, I mean, to me, that's kind of coming to another place I wanted to go to, which is an inclusive culture because you have another statistic, which is that merely 36% of business professionals today believe they're in companies that foster an inclusive culture. And I'm thinking of this question or this topic in part because you just mentioned millennials. And when you look at the statistics on, you know, I guess I'll call it, you know, acceptance of multiculturalism, uh, racial differences, uh, those percentages start to look a lot different uh, with millennials as opposed to boomers, for instance. There's a lot more acceptance and appreciation and embrace of that cultural diversity. Uh, We still have very few CEOs who are, you know, not white males. In fact, in my book that I'm working on called The Devil's Dictionary of Workplace, I define diversity as, uh, in senior management, a short white guy. What are companies that are doing well uh, with managing an inclusive culture? How, how are they getting there? What, what's going on for them? Well, I think the first thing that I would say, Dan, in response to that question is that Many organizations. So let, let's let's think about diversity and inclusion because we often we use those terms together. In fact, it's diversity, equity, and inclusion. Now, many organizations have made great gains on the diversity front. They have they have di- they've diversified their organizations. But diversity is a matter of composition and makeup. Now it's important, and we need to do that. But diversity is not inclusion. They are different, different things. In fact, they're very different things. They're related. But if diversity yep. is composition and, and makeup, 
Inclusion is belief and behavior. And where many organizations are hitting the wall is they make gains in diversity, but they're not behaving differently. They're not behaving with inclusive behaviors that they demonstrate that become the norms of the organization. And so we still have quite a bit of work to do to shed the bias and the prejudice and the, the stereotype thinking that plagues us. We still have work to do on that end. And it goes back to, as I said before, there's two things that have to happen in an organization to create a deeply inclusive culture. Number one, the leaders have to model it. Number two, they have to hold others accountable to behave in that same way. If one or the other of those two things is not happening, then it will never happen. So those are the two indispensable factors, the modeling and the accountability, because the modeling reinforces again and again and again. And then the accountability has to go with it. There have to be uh, real consequences for a violation of inclusive uh, behaviors. Uh, um, if we're not committed to it, then implicitly we are agreeing to different standards. And what has happened in the past, Dan, is that, and we see it all around us, is that organizations have normalized unacceptable behavior. We've normalized in many ways, not, not, not every organization and not everywhere, but in a lot of places, we've normalized bullying behavior. We've normalized harassment behavior. We've normalized public shaming behavior. We've normalized manipulation. And, and, and people are allowed to treat each other this way. And, and the accountability isn't there. They're not called to account for it. And so it will, it will be perpetuated unless those two things happen, the modeling and the accountability. Well, I love that answer, and you're, you're right to, to, I guess, in effect, call me on the fact that, yes, there's a separation between diversity and inclusion. I, I can think of an instance in Silicon Valley where I was invited in by the HR department to uh, talk on the issues or the topics of emotional intelligence and inclusion, and the intent was for the senior executive team to attend. Now, they didn't, and maybe it turned out differently because of that, but they had diversity in that company. They did yeah. not have inclusion. There was a lot of, uh, most of the people who came to my session and it was well attended, uh, tend to be a lot of people from the ranks who were uh, not so many women because there weren't a lot of women in the company, uh, but a lot of uh, people who were programmers, et cetera, from Asia. Yeah. And what I remember to this day, almost as clearly as that person back from consumer affairs, was the pain in their voice as they asked the questions essentially about, you know, how is this going to change? Um, you know, how, how does respect show? Because they weren't, you know, feeling it. They weren't experiencing it in the company. Let me, we're going to run out of time here in just a little bit, but I wanted to get to, to two last questions maybe. One is a statistic that, again, bowls me over. Uh, it was that 50% of employees report being treated rudely at work at least once a week. I mean, that is yeah. stunning. I mean, the, your ability to come in with, in effect, an emotional bruise uh, day after day and then operate seems to me difficult beyond belief. Uh, what more might you want to say on this? Well, that statistic kind of pulled us over too, Dan, to be honest. And that, that, that comes from our survey research 
where we we list uh, a whole series of what we would call breaches of psychological safety, and we ask people how often they experienced at least one breach, and half the people said, you know, once a week. It's it's incredible. So think about what that does. When there's a breach of psychological safety, it censors our self self-censoring instinct. It activates that self-censoring instinct, and we retreat. We withdraw and we manage personal risk, which is a perfectly normal thing to do for an adaptable creature. So that's what we do. But, but think about the costs. Think about the, the, the consequences. If you're on the receiving end of that, it thrusts you into a defensive mode of performance. Your productivity goes down. Uh, you're managing personal risk. You're thinking about self-preservation. and and then you got to try to you you've got to try to restore and rebuild to get to a place where you feel confident again and then if it happens again you can see that so there's a lot of people they live their professional lives playing defense instead of playing offense and so the the cost to them from a career standpoint and then the organization from a productivity standpoint are profound and, and that's what we see. So there's a huge opportunity for organizations to, to increase psychological safety and then uh, to enjoy all of the consequences, the positive consequences that come with that. Sure. No, when I, when I read that statistic, I actually sat back in my chair for a moment and the image that came into my head was, uh, say, a garment factory in Bangladesh and half the buildings on fire. And the other half of the employees are trying supposedly to be able to concentrate on their work, yeah. knowing that there's a fire right behind them. That, that is impossible, of course. Um, we're going to run out of time. So I wanted to end on a positive note. And this, this is such a wise and gentle and important book. Um, so I appreciate the time you've given it here today. You say that it's connection that in the end brings us sustained happiness. That, that seems to me so true. Um, so I'd like to go out with maybe you've got a, a happy story or example you can tell that, you know, helps kind of uh, put the evidence behind that statement. Well, I think, uh, as we know, we are social creatures. And um, I think the, the, the good news is that there is a there's a giant opportunity that lies before us to take the next step uh, to create communities that truly are inclusive. And we are starting to see, we, we do measure through survey research of the four stages, we're starting to see some startling results of teams that are recasting their norms and they're shifting to uh, create cultures of deep inclusion. And, and I, I gotta tell you, it's, it's, it's pretty exciting. It's pretty exciting. Um, one of the things that I say in the book, and this is probably a good parting thought, Dan, is that when it comes to inclusion, the governing principle, the way that I say it in the book, is that worth precedes worthiness. Worth means that we all have inherent worth as human beings, and so we're entitled, we're actually entitled to inclusion as a human right. Uh, as long as we're Number one, human, and number two, we don't present each other with harm. We're not threatening harm. We're entitled to that. 
we worthiness that's a different discussion you know we're going to talk about uh performance and and it is a very competitive world and we'll have that discussion but when it comes to fundamental inclusion if you are human and if you don't present me with harm i have a moral obligation to invite you into my society and and that's a beautiful thing and so i hope that this book uh, does a little bit to help people understand that, you know what, we've got some cultural baggage to overcome. We need to slough it off. We need to unlearn some some behaviors and some patterns and some beliefs. And uh, there's a great opportunity that lies ahead in in every social setting or organization that we're in. Okay. I, I, I couldn't agree more. So we have in time indeed used up our time. I want to thank you again for being my guest on Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. This has been episode number 20. Is it expensive to be yourself? Uh, my guest, Timothy Clark, the author of The Four Stages of Psycholo- Psychology Safety, Defining the Path to Inclusion and Innovation. Uh, to check out other episodes or my books or other activities, uh, you can always go to my company's website at the obligatory three W's and sensorylogic.com. If you've got a follow-up question for Tim, uh, you can email me at dhill at sensorylogic.com. If you've enjoyed the show, of course, uh, welcome you giving it a rating or review through iTunes. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an appropriate epigram. So today's quote comes from Albert Einstein, who said, you can't solve a problem on the same level that it was created. You have to rise above it to the next level. Until next time, be kind and stay safe. (laughs) 